I'm going to choose to believe you were applauding for me and not just because you got to sit down. In the first service, there, there was scattered applause. It was a little troubling. But thank you. It's good to be here. We'll tell them that the second service is out doing them. It's good to, be, good to be here worshiping with you, as Cody said. I, uh, this is one of my favorite days of the year, this, this season of All Saints, where we, we commemorate, remember, attend to all of the people who've given their lives to God in ways that model faithfulness for us. So I'm, uh, I'm hoping that all of you, like at least my experience has been over time, as I've kind of gotten into the rhythm of the church calendar and the liturgy to kind of become more and more aware of belonging to this body of Christ, this universal body that has a history that stretches back so far and who knows how far into the future and that I belong to that. So I'm grateful to be worshiping with you in the presence of all today. Let's pray and then we'll jump in. Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for the ways in which you open up space for us in your presence, to be present to you and to one another. We are present here with all the saints, with all the archangels, and with you and with one another, to hear what it is you need to say to us that we need to hear, and to say to you what we need to say. I pray, Lord, that you grace both the hearing and the speaking. We pray this in your name. Amen. So I want to talk this morning about the judgment of God. When Cody tweeted yesterday or the day before that that was the sermon title for the week, someone responded saying, that sounds ominous, I'll be praying for the church. So just know, if it's going badly this morning, someone out there is interceding for you. But it it does, I think, for many of us, sound ominous to talk about the judgment of God, so much so that I think we can set up a kind of binary, that on one end is mercy and on the other end is justice, on one end is the gospel, on the other end is judgment. But I want to try to make a case for you this morning that we, we don't really understand the judgment of God at all if we think we understand the judgment of God, that we forget that it's God's judgment and that it's revealed in Jesus Christ so that we're not really starting to see what we need to see or hear what we need to hear until talk about the judgment of God is gospel to us, is good news to us, and we're not really hearing the gospel until we hear the gospel in ways that it is judgment because the mercy and justice of God are one, that what Jesus reveals is that God is just in his mercy and merciful in his justice in God, they are one. So I, I want to talk about, I want to at least try to talk about the judgment of God today in a way that is gospel, and to talk about the gospel in a way that brings the judgment of God to bear on us, so that we see Jesus. I think that's always the task when we gather for moments like this. So let's begin in Isaiah chapter 1. This opening oracle or prophecy of Isaiah is a call through the prophet from God to Israel to meet for judgment. And many of the prophets speak in this way, that God is the judge who's calling the accused into the argument of judgment. God is claiming that they have wronged him. He's giving them a chance to respond. And we we hear this word of accusation from God to Israel as defendant in Isaiah chapter 1. Let's start in verse 10. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Listen to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or lambs or goats. 
When you come to appear before me, who asks this from your hand? Trample my courts no more. Bringing offerings is futile. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and calling of convocation. I cannot endure solemn assemblies with iniquity. Your new moons and your appointed festivals my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am, a we- I am weary of bearing them. When you stretch out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your doings from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Rescue the oppressed. Defend the orphan. Plead for the widow. Come now, let us argue it out, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be like snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. So This is the moment of dissension between God the accuser and Israel the accused. The moment of judgment. I want to show you one other moment of judgment from the book of Habakkuk, another prophet, who brings an, uh, God's accusation against Israel. But in this case, as you'll see, the prophet speaks to God on Israel's behalf. This is not an accusation from God to Israel, but an accusation from Israel to God. Habakkuk chapter 1, the oracle that the prophet Habakkuk saw. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not listen? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see wrongdoing and look at trouble? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law becomes slack and justice never prevails. The wicked surround the righteous. Therefore, judgment comes forth perverted. Now, both of these prophecies happen in the moment of judgment. In the first, and we'll turn to it again in a moment. In the first, God is accusing Israel of wrong. In this passage, Israel is accusing God of wrong. Israel's response in the moment of of judgment is, yes, we have sinned in those ways, but God, you sinned too. You are not intervening as you should intervene. How long are you going to wait? before you bring your judgment. I do think it's important, this is a footnote to everything else I want to say, but I do think it's important that we, we have built into our practice of the faith the awareness that God means to engage us in dialogue. God is not a monologuer, and he doesn't want us to be monologuers. Right? We're meant to speak to God as well as to hear from God. And one of the marks of maturing faith is that you can say back to God, yes, I hear what you're saying, but what about this from you? Right? That that, it's important that that be built into our faith, that lament and protest be a part of the ways in which we worship. Lament and protest that arise from faith and move to faith, but genuinely acknowledge, God, it seems like in this case, you're, the, you're in the wrong. And if we are afraid to say that, it's because we're not facing some truth. And, and we don't need to fear it. Right? God, is, God can take our protest. In fact, he invites it because it's in that protest that we start to see the ways in which we've been deceived. So come back to Isaiah for a moment. God's accusation against Israel. It's a startling one. He begins by calling them Sodom. And then listing the ways in which he despises their worship. I think it's... It's humorous, but in a kind of troubling way, when God says to them, when you bring all of these sacrifices to me, who asked you to do it? Well, God, you did. You know, remember Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, you know, all of those books? Like, there is minutia 
for minutia. It's all kinds of kind of tendentious commands about how we're to offer sacrifices with detail upon detail upon detail about what kind of animals have to be offered in what way, on what day, by which priest, for which sins. You told us all of that. What do you mean, who asked you to do it? But we're not reading Scripture faithfully. We don't realize that there's this tension built into the way we're meant to read. It seems as if God is asking this of us when really God is up to something else, and it requires this kind of discerning attention. And God is saying, no, I never wanted that. I know I asked for it, but I didn't want that. What I wanted was this. All along, I wanted you to see that what I wanted was a broken and a contrite heart, not the blood of animals. And so they're coming and they're bringing their sacrifices, but they're not caring for those in need. They're doing evil, he says. They're doing evil like failing to rescue the oppressed, failing to defend the orphan, failing to plead for the widow. That's the evil God finds so troubling. That's what he's accusing Israel of. They're worshiping rightly, but they're not caring for their neighbor. And this reveals God's accusation against them, that they are idol worshipers even when they're worshiping in his name because they're trying to worship without taking responsibility for their neighbor. That is idolatry. The attempt to have a relationship with God so that I can get the blessings of God without having to be responsible for my neighbor. That is the sin God finds so sickening. And if you think it's difficult for you to come to church, if you think you hate going to church, think about what it's like for God. I'm sick of your feast days, he says. And when you stretch out your hands and you offer many prayers, I will not hear them until you leave your gift at the altar and go and care for the oppressed and the widow and the orphan. I, I, I want a broken heart and a contrite spirit. I want you to take responsibility for your neighbor. And then the protest from Israel is, but how can we take responsibility for our neighbor if you don't bring your justice? We can't do it in our own strength. That's Habakkuk's cry. God, I want justice, and I'm asking you to bring it, and you won't bring justice. And so we're caught in this moment. God accusing Israel of worshiping without taking responsibility for their neighbor, of attempting to love God without loving their neighbor or their enemy, which is idolatry. And Israel's response of saying, we can't do what you're asking us to do. This is, this is a difficult moment. How, how do we get to the truth from this place of conflict? Before, before I attempt to answer it, though, I, I want you to, to sit with the fact that God calls Israel Sodom for this sin of failing to care for the oppressed and the widow and the orphan. We have such a kind of pop cultural sense of what the sin of Sodom is that we fail to read what the texts actually say about Sodom and Gomorrah. And overwhelmingly, in, in references to Sodom and Gomorrah in Scripture, you can go and study this for yourself, and I encourage you to, you get one of two ways that the story of Sodom is used in Scripture, Old Testament and New Testament. The first way is as the example of what happens when God judges absolutely, when the judgment of God falls on a people and they have no future because of it. So over and over in Scripture, you'll see references to say, I will judge you like I judged Sodom, and made a complete end. The other way that the story is used is as an example of the, the most egregious sin possible. And without exception, do you know what that sin is described as? Failure to care for the stranger 
failure of hospitality. Ezekiel 16, just this just kind of astonishing prophecy against Israel. God is comparing Israel to Sodom, and he keeps referring to Sodom as Israel's sister, your sister Sodom. And then he says, this was the sin of Sodom. Sodom was proud and increased with good and enjoyed much food, but did not care for the hungry and the poor. This was the sin of Sodom. They enjoyed this kind of endless bounty, this incredible richness of life, and didn't care for the poor right outside their door. That was the sin of Sodom. And now God is saying again to Israel, you are Sodom. And how do I know it? Because you come and you offer sacrifices and you offer prayers and you go through the motions of worship and you do not care for the oppressed and you do not care for the widows and you do not care for the orphans. Jesus sends his apostles out to preach. He sends them out in his name and says, declare the good news to all of Israel. Heal the sick. And if you are received, speak blessing over the house that receives you. But if you are rejected, If they despise your message, shake the dust off of your feet and leave. And it will be worse for them on the day of judgment than for Sodom. Think about that. It will be worse on the day of judgment for them than for Sodom. It's it's so hard for us to believe that because we think we know which sins God really cares about and which ones he doesn't care that much about. Whether we like to admit it or not, we, we have a sense of sin ranked. And we know where the really, really, really bad ones are, and we know what the not-so-bad ones are. You know, the, the white lies versus the black lies, right? We, we know the ways in which what really counts, that God will really be angry about, and then what God doesn't seem to care about. The problem with that is, over and over in Scripture, God seems to care more about what we don't care about. Abraham Heschel and his kind of astounding book on the prophets, says this, the sort of crimes and even the amount of delinquency that fill the prophets of Israel with dismay do not go beyond what we regard as normal, as typical ingredients of social dynamics. To us, a single act of injustice, cheating in business, exploitation of the poor, is a slight. To the prophets, it's a disaster. To us, Injustice is injurious to the welfare of the people. To the prophets, it is a death blow to existence. To us, it's an episode, an unfortunate episode. To them, it is a catastrophe. It is a threat to the world. And so we have God's accusation against Israel, calling them Sodom, and then listing the sin of not caring for widows and orphans. And I'll speak for you here. I don't think I really believe that. I mean, I believe it conceptually. I I accept it intellectually, but it's not in my bones. I don't really wake up every day with this consuming passion for the widows and the orphans, for the weak and the oppressed, because I don't really believe that's God's passion. When, When the things that grieve me, the things that seem to me to be a threat to the existence of the world are, are almost certainly the things that seem like a threat to you. They're what seem to us like the major threatening issues. But what we see again and again in Scripture is that's not what concerns God. And what to you and to me seems negligible, unfortunate at worst, 
to God is the sin of Sodom. We're not caring for those who need justice. That's, we're not taking responsibility. We're attempting to have this relationship with God to enrich our own lives with blessing, and we're not taking responsibility for our neighbor. And yet we can say, and all of those who give their life to care for the poor find themselves at some, some point saying, well, God, why aren't you doing more? I don't know if you read these journals of Mother Teresa that were published after she died, but they're filled with that kind of lament and protest. Here's a woman who is giving her life to the widows and the orphans, to the bodies left on the streets, to the dying. And yet what is in her heart is a struggle with why God isn't doing more. And so here is the moment of judgment. God is saying to us, you are not taking responsibility. And the ones among us who actually are taking responsibility are saying back to God, no, wait a minute, God, you're not taking responsibility. And only Jesus answers the judgment of God. Because what we see in Jesus is both God fulfilling God's promise to be God to us and fulfilling God's command for us to be faithful. Think about that passage in Isaiah. God says to, to Israel, when you stretch out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. What does that sound like? That's Golgotha. That's Jesus on the cross with his hands outstretched, crying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Experiencing for us the judgment of God. But he is also God bringing his justice. In Jesus, we see both God's judgment against us taking on our behalf and God's judgment for us coming to bear. Jesus is the judgment of God for us and for God. That's how, when, that's how we know what God is like and how we know what we're supposed to be. You want to know what God is? Look at Jesus. You want to know what human beings are meant to be? Look at Jesus. Because only in his life do we see the judgment of God, both God being judged and God doing the judgment. That's how this moment of judgment is resolved. And that's precisely what we see in the story of Zacchaeus. Luke chapter 19, the gospel passage we just read. In Luke's gospel, Jesus early on is ministering in Galilee, the very north, if you're looking at a map of Israel, he's in the northern part of his, of his homeland. And he sets his face toward Jerusalem, it says, and he begins to move toward Jerusalem to, to die. And in Luke's gospel, and we've all heard all of our lives that Jesus' ministry was three years long, but in Luke's gospel, it's actually only a few months, fewer than nine months, from the time he sets his face toward Jerusalem and the time he arrives and dies. And he's moving south all the time, making this kind of straight line for Jerusalem, stopping in cities and towns along the way to teach, to heal the sick, and so on. And he finally comes to Jericho. And outside of Jericho, just outside the city gates, there is a, a blind beggar who cries out and says, Son of David, have mercy on me, and Jesus heals him. And then Jesus comes into the city right in the kind of heat of that moment, and we start the story of Zacchaeus there. He entered Jericho and was passing through it. A man was there named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. Now, in the Gospel of Luke, the rich never come off well. The rich in the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts are, as Jerome, the early church father, said, either wicked or heirs of wickedness. Except in this case. 
Because Zacchaeus is rich, but he's rich as an outsider. Most of the rich that we encounter in Luke's gospel are rich from the temple system or they're rich from working within Israel's system. Here is a case of an Israelite who's serving the Roman government, who's making his wealth from serving the oppressors. And we have a kind of odd image here of a man who is rich, and we know from reading Luke's gospel that's problematic, but he's also oppressed as the oppressor. He is on the side of Rome, occupying Israel. He's taxing his own people, and in some ways he's the problem. But in other ways, he's suffering because of the ways in which his people have rejected him. So he's rich, and yet he's small. He's wealthy, and yet he has no respect from his own people. So he's both inside and outside at the same time. He's both oppressed and oppressor at the same time. And he wants to see Jesus, but the crowd will not let him. And what we're supposed to picture here is not that he's too short to see Jesus. It's that the crowd won't let him to the front. They recognize him as that tax collector, and they are actively keeping him from making his way to the front where he can see Jesus. They're, they're resisting him. On account of the crowd, he cannot see. And so Zacchaeus runs ahead of the parade and climbs the sycamore tree so he can see Jesus. And we're meant to laugh a bit. This is a kind of a comic scene. I mean, here's, here's a wealthy man, a powerful man, who at the same time is at the mercy of the crowd. He can't get what he wants. And they are not going to allow it to happen. So he is willing to look silly. Right? He's willing to act absurd and climb a tree so he can see. And he does. And he's settled in, peering between the leaves, and Jesus stops underneath the tree and says, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down. I must stay at your house today. So he hurried down and was happy to welcome him. Now what's what happens here is a surprise to Zacchaeus and to everyone else. And it speaks to the heart of the gospel for us because Zacchaeus thinks he's seeking Jesus. He thinks he's doing everything within his power to see Jesus. He's fighting with the crowd, and when he can't win against the crowd, he runs ahead of them and climbs the tree. Zacchaeus thinks he's going out of his way so he can see Jesus. What he doesn't realize is that Jesus is only in Jericho because Jesus is seeking Zacchaeus. And this is true for all of us. We think we're seeking God, but whatever seeking we're doing is already the work of God seeking us. If we're calling on God, it's because he's already called on us. If we think we're going to invite him to our house, it's because he's already inviting himself to our house. We are always guests. He's always the host. We are always reacting to his mercy. We're never creating it. Any good that happens in my life happens because there is a God who is acting gracefully on my part before I know to ask for it. So many of us, I think, at, at some deep level believe that the good that comes in our life won't happen unless we want it. But the wanting it only happens because the good is happening to you. God isn't good to you because you want him to be. You want him to be because he's good to you. God is always previous. The grace always comes first and then opens you up to receive more. And so Jesus says, Zacchaeus, I'm here for you. Come down, let's go to your house. And Zacchaeus, with just this silly grin on his face, scrambles down out of the tree. And the crowd, well, they lose their mind. They lose their mind. And one of the things that's interesting about the Gospel of Luke is up to this point, 
The only people we've seen grumbling are the Pharisees. And now for the first time in the Gospels, it's not just the Pharisees grumbling, it's everybody. Because grumbling is an infectious disease. This is all of us who've been on Facebook or Twitter during this season have caught this disease. You all have it. It may be dormant, it may not be eating you up yet, but all of us have this disease of grumbling, which evokes the story of Israel in the wilderness. And here are these people who've been delivered out of Egypt. They've been called to inhabit a promised land, but what their life is like day to day is a life of begrudging what they do not have and grumbling about what they do have. That's the mark of sin. If if the mark of grace in my life is that more and more gratitude is breaking through, the mark that that I'm losing touch with the grace that's at work in my life is that I'm grumbling about more and more. And think about this crowd. They're angry because Jesus is showing mercy to Zacchaeus. Remember, this is the same crowd that just kept him from getting to the front. And now he's gone around them, and Jesus has stopped to speak to Zacchaeus. Can you imagine how angry those people... There were people in that crowd that day, right, who had gotten there hours early so they could get Jesus' autograph. Like, they were there to hear this man teach, to see him perform miracles, to open blind eyes, maybe to raise the dead, who knows, maybe to turn water to wine, who knows... And now he's going to talk to Zacchaeus and go to his house? But hear me. There are people, and you may not know them now. I hope you don't. I I don't know necessarily who it would be for me. But there are people that if I could see God being good to them, it would make me angry. Because that's what sin does to us. And and I, I hope someone doesn't leap to mind immediately for you. I hope someone does. I hope that someone isn't me. But if someone leaps to mind for you or not, there is a place somewhere in us that resents the goodness of God to those that we don't think deserve it. That we, we think they've lived in such a way that they vetoed their right to have God as, as their guest. And Jesus is stirring up the hornet's nest here. Zacchaeus, I want to go home with you. And then I love what, they, what, what he, he says in the crowd's presence. They say he has gone to be the guest of one who is a sinner. The crowd turns on Jesus now. Not on Zacchaeus, but on Jesus. Because ultimately what gets Jesus killed is what he does for people like Zacchaeus. It's not just, they're fine with Jesus as long as he doesn't start to change the world too much. But when he starts to change the way the world is structured, when he starts to change the way rights and wrongs seem to work and who's in and who's out that's what gets him killed so they're grumbling not just about Zacchaeus anymore they're grumbling about Jesus and then Zacchaeus standing there I mean he hears all of these people protesting he knows they're angry he knows they're angry that Jesus is going home with him and right there he says to Jesus Lord I will give half of my possessions to the poor and if I have defrauded anyone of anything I will pay him back four times as much Now, if you're a little bit cynical like I am, you're thinking, oh, Zacchaeus, don't say that right here. Like somebody in this crowd is going to come up to you and pretend to have been defrauded by you and say, you know what, you wronged me. It's risky for him to say, I'll give half of my possessions to the poor and I'll give four times as much as I took from anyone if they just tell me. Gregory the Great, in his commentary on this passage, points that out. And he he shows that in, in, in Greek, in Luke's Greek, the word for sycamore tree is a wordplay 
And it can be interpreted as the foolish tree. And Gregory says, Zacchaeus climbs the tree of foolishness to see the wisdom of God. And what is more foolish? Listen to his words. What is more foolish than not seeking for what we've lost? Not keeping our possessions away from robbers? Or not returning injury for injury? Gregory says, Zacchaeus is not defending himself anymore. He's found Jesus, so he doesn't have to defend himself anymore. And that is the foolishness that enables us to see the wisdom of God. Because when you really see Jesus, you realize you don't have enemies. They may think they're your enemies, but you know that they're your brothers and sisters who just don't know they're your your brothers and sisters yet. You don't have to protect yourself because you know you are held in the hands of your Creator. You don't have to make your own future because you know the God who is your future. Zacchaeus has this moment of complete abandonment. He's not worried about protecting himself anymore because he's seen Jesus. And one of the things that strikes me about this that I wish we could see and hear is that Jesus didn't say a word to Zacchaeus about his sins. Jesus didn't stop under that tree and say, Zacchaeus, you are a greedy, cruel little man. And if you'll come down out of that tree and make your sins right, I'll go home with you. He doesn't say, if you will confess that you're a sinner and invite me into your heart, I'll go home with you. He just says, Zacchaeus, I came looking for you. Let's go to your house. And that very communion, that very recognition that he is loved by this one he already loves frees him up and makes him aware of his responsibilities to those he's wronged. That's how we know it's God's work. Because where God is most at work, I'm most aware of my responsibility to my neighbor. If idolatry is the attempt to have a relationship with God without responsibility for my neighbor, faithfulness is a love for God that looks like responsibility for my neighbor. It's loving God as I love my neighbor as myself. And Zacchaeus has this communion with Jesus, and it frees him up from defensiveness. That's the kind of life we need to be living in the world, a life that is not afraid of what can be done to us because we know who has us and that nothing can separate us from the love of the one who holds us in being. We ought to be able to live a fearless life, not because we're naive about the brokenness of the world, not because we think that the world isn't broken, but because we understand that no matter what is happening in the world, God is God. And if my life is hidden with God in Christ, there is nothing that can be against me that's as great as the one who is for me, and that whatever is meant to destroy me cannot destroy me if God is the creator who creates from nothing. So there's no place for naivete. There's no place for looking at the world through rose-colored glasses. But there is a place for seeing what can't be seen. There is a place for grasping the God who's holding us in being so that nothing can destroy us. And that's the moment Zacchaeus has. And what he says is, you know what, I'm, I'm through being miserly and greedy. You can have it all. I have what I want. I have what I need. And then Jesus says to the crowd, Today, salvation has come to this house because he too is a son of Abraham. And this this line is, I think, so crucially important. Jesus is saying it to Zacchaeus, but everybody in the crowd is hearing it. And what Jesus is saying is, everyone listen. This is what salvation looks like. Salvation looks like communing with God in such a way that you live defenselessly. You live with radical openness. 
That's salvation. And he too is a son of Abraham. He is like you are. What Jesus is doing is saying, you may not know it yet, but Zacchaeus belongs to you and you belong to him. You may think of yourselves as different from him, but you're not different from him. You are all sons and daughters of Abraham. You may think you're estranged enemies, but you're actually brothers and sisters. Get used to it. And that's what God is doing to all of us all the time. You may think you know who these people are. You don't really know who they are because they're mine and you're mine. Therefore, you belong to each other. We don't have enemies. We just have people who think they are our enemies. Or people we think are our enemies. Today's salvation has come. So I end with this. Jesus, in this moment, transforms Zacchaeus and makes it a possible moment for transformation for the whole crowd. And he does it by bringing the judgment of God. Notice what happens. He doesn't shame Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus comes aware of his sins without hating himself for his sins. When the judgment of God really comes, it's, it doesn't blind us to what's wrong with us. It makes us aware of it. But it makes us aware of it in, a ways, that, in ways that are never shameful, that are never humiliating, but are empowering to make right what we now realize we can make right. That we are sons and daughters of Abraham too. And we can take responsibility for one another. That's grace. Cheap grace just tells you your sins don't matter. Costly grace transforms you so that you can live in ways that bring the righteousness of God to bear. No shame at all. No embarrassment at all. No humiliation at all. But the kind of awareness that empowers you to live responsibly. That's grace. That's what he brings to Zacchaeus. And it transforms Zacchaeus immediately so that Zacchaeus begins to participate with Jesus in his work. He becomes with Jesus the judgment of God. Maximus Confessor, 6th and 7th century theologian, has this astonishing passage where he talks about Jesus and the poor. And I want to end with this. If the poor man is God, it is because of God's condescension in becoming poor for us. All the more will we become like God as we heal the hurts of those who suffer, loving others in imitation of God. The one who becomes like God has the same power of saving providence that God has. If the poor man is God. Now how would Maximus get this idea? Well, he gets it from multiple passages of Scripture. First, Jesus saying, what you do to the least of these, you do to me. And Paul saying, he who was rich became poor for us. And Maximus says, Jesus is so radically identified with the poor that what you do to the poor, you do to him. That's how seriously God takes it. What you do or fail to do to the poor, you do to Jesus or fail to do to Jesus. That's how radically he's identified with him. He is the poor. But we become like God as we heal those hurts, as we turn and do to the least of these what he did to the least of these, we become like him. And we then, he says, we share in the same power of providence that God has. This seems astounding, but think about what Paul says to the Corinthians. He says, we have been given a share in his ministry of reconciliation so that we are co 
laborers with him, as if God were making his call through us. And here's the threshold. Here's the shift between immature faith and mature faith. Immature faith is waiting on God to do something God will do through us. Mature faith is the recognition that it's as grace enables me to take responsibility that God does in the world what I'm asking God to do in the world. We're asking God to send his judgment, like Habakkuk. God, how long? And God's response is, I'm responding now. You are my response. You are the providence of God. In this community, in your family, on your jobs, in this world, you are the providence of God. You are God's response to the cry for justice. When the widow and the orphan and the oppressed cry out to God at night, for God to redeem them, you are their answer to prayer. I am their answer. This is God's response. And at some point, we have to realize that's what God is waiting on, and that's what the world is waiting on. Romans 8 says that creation is groaning, waiting not for God to be revealed, but for you and me to be revealed as the sons and daughters of God. What we're waiting on is the moment that we realize the judgment we're crying out God to send, God has sent. You and I are that judgment. Now we have to live it. Zacchaeus realized Jesus has shown up for you because he wants you to become one with him in his care for the least of these. What happens in this moment with Zacchaeus is not only is he set free from greed and fear and self-protection, but immediately he becomes one who gives that same care of Jesus to everyone else. This is grace. Grace that doesn't seal me off from the world. Grace that doesn't protect me from the harms that might come to someone else, but grace that situates me right in the heart of the brokenness of the world and makes me a participant with what God is doing to heal the suffering of the people around me. That's what Jesus wants to do, and nothing less than that. And that can take any form. This morning before the first service, or during the first service, before I spoke, Roger Brune walked up to me during the singing, put his arm around me, and said, you look lonely. I just want you to know you have a friend in the crowd. And I mean, he was just being Roger, just being friendly. But he has no idea what's going on in my life right now. He has no idea the ways in which that was grace to me. That was Jesus to me. And that, it's, a, it's a throwaway moment. It's just, you know, one friend saying to another friend, hey, I'm here for you. It might be something much larger than that. But from the smallest, most insignificant moment to incredible donations of huge amounts of money or giving your life like Mother Teresa to a whole city of people for generations, whatever it looks like, any and all of that is participation in God's providence in the world. And what God wants for you and for me is for us to be set free into that. What would it look like if you and I lived with that kind of boldness? We are the providence of God in the world. With every word we say or don't say, with every prayer we pray, with every time we lay hands on someone to see them healed, with every time we give a gift, every time we make room for them to share in our family meal, everything we do is the work of God in the world. That's what we need. That's the judgment that he promises. But you can only enact that, and I'm done with this, you can only enact that if you understand that Jesus stopped right underneath your tree calling you by name. You can only share like Zacchaeus did in the justice that Jesus wants to bring if you know Jesus has absolutely come for you. 
that Jesus is far more in love with you than you could ever be with him, that he's far more interested in finding you than you could ever be in finding him, and if you can accept just how devoted he is to you and let that release you, what you'll find is not just that you have peace, but you become a peacemaker. Not just that God's joy is in your life, but you bring joy to other people's lives. That's what you're called for. Let me pray for you, and then we're done. Uh, yes, so he says, yes, I absolutely will. That's, that's one of the good things about this sermon is even if you don't like anything that I say, you're getting really good quotes here. <laughs> he says this. No, no, no. I, no yeah. He says, he climbs the tree of foolishness to see the wisdom of God. For what is more foolish than not to seek for what has been lost, to not keep our possessions from robbers, to not return injury for injury, to not live with self-protection, right? to live with our arms open, not closed, to live with, the rest of you can be angry at her for triggering more of this sermon, but I remember the realization I had once about the way our homes are built, and I I was taking a class on postmodern architecture. Doesn't that sound fun? And part of our reading was to think about the ways in which neighborhoods have shifted in American culture over the last hundred years. One of the things that I will never forget is the realization that for a long time, porches were on the front of the house, open to the street. And now, we don't have porches on the front of the house open to the street. We have decks on the back of the house fenced in. Now, that's not true everywhere. I mean, there are exceptions, I'm sure, in some of your homes. But that, that to me, speaks about a fundamental shift from living on the front porch with our lives open to our neighbors. Presence of God available to hidden away in our backyards with the people we've chosen to be with. You can't be Christian. I mean, you can have a backyard and be a Christian. That's not what I mean. But you, <laughs> you, you can't live that way, right? You can't live that way. The goal of Christianity is not to get as many people into the backyard as we can, right? This metaphor is getting away from me. But I hope you hear what I mean, right? I'm going to trust that you do, and I'm going to, I'm going to pray. <laughs> Thanks. I appreciate that. Lord, thank you. Thank you for the ways in which you seek us out long before we know how to seek you. And that even when we seek you, it's just your grace that enables it. God, I pray that you free us up to live with our arms open. God, let us be people who are not living from a posture of self-defense all the time, but are able more and more to live fearlessly, to live with the foolishness that you give us that is wiser than all the wisdom of the world, so that your grace can come to bear in the lives of the people around us, in our friends, in our family, in the lives of strangers, in the lives of our enemies. God, let us live in such a way that your goodness can be seen and tasted because we are living without defense. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Sanctuary Church. If you're in the Tulsa area, we invite you to attend one of our weekend services on Sundays at 8.30 a.m., 10 a.m., or 11.30 a.m. If you would like more information about who we are and what we're about, or to partner financially with what God is doing through Sanctuary, you can go to our website at SanctuaryTulsa.com. 
You can also download our mobile app from the App Store and Google Play. We hope you'll join us next week. Grace and peace.